right, kids, I want to start by asking you a question. All right, so my kids dialed in here. Okay, raise your hand if you feel like it is forever until Christmas. Yeah, it takes so long, right? It all, like, how many of you were ready for Christmas on December 1st? You're like ready for it to be here, yeah. And you're just counting down the days and you can't believe you still have to go to school and you can't believe it's not Christmas yet, right? Why is that? Why is there this long buildup to Christmas, right? We don't really feel that way about Easter or the 4th of July or really any other holiday. Why is it that Christmas has this long approach, right, where we're counting down the days. Well, um, that long approach to Christmas actually has a purpose, a biblical purpose, right? It's not just commercial, right? It's not just for businesses to have a long Christmas season, although there, you know, there is that. It's not even primarily just like a practical, that's the way we do it or that's the way we need to do it. The, re, the, the long buildup to Christmas is primarily spiritual. The long approach to Christmas is meant to remind us of the long approach to the birth of Jesus. The waiting, the anticipation that we experience, that you kids are experiencing, especially at Christmas, over days and weeks And sometimes months, that is meant to remind us about how long God's people waited for the Savior to be born. Do you know that the first promise that God would send a Savior was given not hundreds of years, but thousands of years before Jesus was born. Can you imagine waiting thousands of years? Of course you can't, right? We don't even live that long. God's people were waiting for thousands of years for the birth of the Savior to come. They wanted Him to be here. They wanted God to send Him, but they had to wait. And at Christmas, we experience some of that waiting, just like when Israel would celebrate the Passover. They weren't just remembering that God had rescued them from Egypt. They were also remembering how it happened. Because when they celebrated the Passover, they also celebrated something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Where for a whole week, all the bread that they ate had to be unleavened. And that was because when they left Israel or Egypt at the Passover, they had to leave in a hurry. So they didn't have time to let their bread leaven. And so they would eat unleavened bread for a week to remind them what the first Passover was like. What their ancestors who experienced the Passover, what it was like for them. And there was another feast that Israel celebrated, we don't talk about as much, called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. And what they would do at the Feast of Booths is they would build themselves a booth, like a a tent, right? And again, for a week, they would live in that tent, even though they had perfectly good houses they could live in, right? They would live in a tent for a week to remind them about how God took care of them in the wilderness. When they left Egypt, they dwelt in tents in the wilderness 
for a long time before they got to the promised land. So they were doing those things at Passover, at the Feast of Booths, to remind them of what it was like to experience the good things that God had done for his people. And we experience that waiting, that longing in the Christmas season that reminds us of how long God's people waited for the birth of this promised Savior. Now, last week we looked at that first promise in Genesis 3.15 where God said that there would be a, a male child who would be born from the line of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent who had tempted Eve, who had helped to bring sin and the curse into the world. A child would be born who would conquer that enemy, who would crush that serpent. And I want you to think about something. If you were watching a movie or reading a book, and early in the story there was a prophecy about a child who was going to be born. And that child who would be born, he would change the world, or he would be king, or he would lead his people to greatness, or something like that. From that point forward in the story, whether you're reading or watching, what are you doing? You're wondering, is, is, this, is this person the one the prophecy was about? Is this child who was just born, is, is that the one? Or, or this young man that's growing up, is, is that going to be the king, the savior, the one who's come to rescue us? And that's the way the Bible works too. From the very beginning of the story of the Bible, there are lots of things happening. But one of the main things that we're looking for and that the authors of the Bible are helping us to look for is which person is going to be the one who is going to fulfill all these prophecies. When Jesus was born, and when he was ministering, he was doing miracles, and he was teaching and all this stuff, that's why so many people were asking, is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior? Is he the one that we've been waiting for all this time? And all through the Old Testament, The prophets are giving us more prophecies, more details, more information as God reveals it to them about who this child is going to be. So again, in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, we have a promise of a male child who's going to be born, who's going to conquer the serpent. But we don't know who that child is going to come from or when he's going to come. But all throughout the book of Genesis... We're looking for that child. And we find out that this child is going to come from the family of Abraham. Because God makes a big promise to Abraham. And he says to Abraham that he's going to give him lots of offspring, lots of children. He's going to give him a special land to dwell in. And he's going to bless him. Now that's a big deal. Because in the beginning, God blessed his creation. But then when they sinned, a curse came. And so when God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, God is telling us, the way I'm going to fix what went wrong when Adam and Eve sinned, I'm going to fix it through Abraham's family. So that's why the book of Genesis focuses on Abraham for so long. And then we find out that that promise is going to come from Isaac, not from Ishmael. It's going to come from Jacob, not from Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons. We might think, oh man, like which, where do we go? Who do we follow? We find out that from Judah, 
is where the kings are going to come from. And, and the king is going to be born from the tribe of Judah. And one of Israel's greatest kings was David. Right? David was from Judah. Interestingly, Saul, the first king of Israel, who was a terrible king, who rejected God and disobeyed and was foolish, he was not from Judah. David was from Judah. And God made a promise to David while he was king that from his line, from his family, would be born a son who would reign on David's throne forever. His kingdom would be established because David saw Saul's kingdom crumbled quickly. Saul thought his son Jonathan should be king after him, but he was not the one that God had chosen. He was not the one that God appointed. And so Saul's kingdom crumbled. His, His sort of dynasty never really happened. But David was promised by God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a family that's going to reign. And that took place in part through David's son Solomon, who became king after him. But it was more than just Solomon's reign because God said, whoever this person is, this child from your line, he's going to reign forever. And his kingdom is going to be established forever. So that's God's way of telling us the child I promised way back in Genesis, the child from Abraham's line, from Isaac's line, from Jacob's line, from Judah's line, is going to come specifically from David's line, and he's going to be a king who's going to reign forever. And then Isaiah picks up on that, and if you haven't turned anywhere in your Bible yet or you're wondering where you're supposed to go, uh, you can look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to camp out here for a moment. Isaiah chapter 9, we read from earlier. Uh, In Isaiah 9, what Isaiah the prophet does is he expands for us uh, on all these prophecies that we've heard so far. The prophecy of a a male child, a prophecy of a, a child from Abraham's line, from David's line, who's going to be king. And Isaiah sort of fills it out for us more. He gives us more detail about what this king, what this child is going to be like. And so when he says in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, these famous words, when we hear them, we think about Jesus automatically, right? For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Well, when we hear that, we know who the child is. We know when he was born. We know exactly who he's talking about. But when he made that prophecy, the people didn't know. Isaiah himself didn't know when that child will be born who he would be. But that prophecy was still important and significant even when he made it because God had been promising from the beginning that there would be a certain child born, a certain baby boy who would come, who would rescue God's people from their enemies, a child born who would come and Uh, come from David's line and who would reign on David's throne. And so that's why Isaiah says that the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He says specifically, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That that kingdom that never ends, his reign will never end. Isaiah says, 
the birth of that child is coming. And when it comes, he says, that child is going to bring peace. Ever since Adam and Eve fell to Satan's temptation in the garden, there has been conflict. There has been trouble. There has been um, anger, animosity, murder. Right? Even in the first family among Cain and Abel, right? Cain killed his brother. Right from the beginning, once Adam and Eve sinned, there has been so much conflict, so much division, so much hurt, and so much pain. But God says, when my promised deliverer comes, when that child comes, one of the names he's going to be called is Prince of Peace. Because he is going to bring peace into this conflicted, divided, at times hateful and spiteful world, and he is going to establish the peace that we all long for. Not only that, but he says in verse 7 that not only of the increase of his government, but also the increase of peace, there will be no end. It's just going to get better and better and better when Jesus comes to reign. And he's not only going to come to reign, and he's not only going to come to bring peace, but he's also going to come, just like God said in the beginning, to rescue us from our enemies. See, in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, we don't normally pay as much attention to those verses, but those verses tell us part of what's so significant about this child being born. The the prophecy doesn't start in verse 6. Verse 6 is sort of the the climax, but we don't want to skip the build-up. He talks about the people who dwelt in darkness. Sometimes it feels like that's where we live, right? In a world of of darkness. He says, upon those who dwelt in darkness, they have seen a great light. Light has shone upon them. Jesus comes into the dark world as the light of the world. And his coming brings joy and rejoicing. Verse 3, he says, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil, right? It's like when you get that Christmas bonus and you're feeling like, yes, life is good. I'm I'm provided for. It's going to be great. That's how they're feeling, he says. Like like when the harvest comes in, you know you're going to have enough food for the year. That's what he's he's talking about. They have that kind of joy. Why? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Often in Israel's history, they were under the thumb of a foreign power. Some other nation, some other people with a bigger army who wanted their land, wanted their resources, and would oppress them. Sometimes Israel brought that on themselves because they rejected God and didn't trust Him. But they were often under these oppressive enemies who would take advantage of them, who would pillage their land and destroy their homes probably, and all those kinds of things. And now, Isaiah says, they are being set free from that. The rod of their oppressor, the strength of the one who is trying to take advantage of them has been broken, has been removed. And now there's coming this 
time of peace and an end to their war and conflict. Verse 5 says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We don't need them anymore. All that's over. No more boots for marching. Because we're done with fighting. Why? Why is there joy? Why is there freedom from their oppressor? Why is there going to be no more marching into battle? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The birth of this child, Isaiah is saying, is what is going to bring about deliverance, joy, peace, Rescue the fulfillment of all those promises God has been making all this time. When He comes, He's going to set everything right. Now, when is He going to come? Isaiah made that prophecy about 700 years before Jesus was born. There's still a lot of waiting at that point. But when the waiting finally comes to an end. Luke tells us the story in Luke chapter 2 about the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah made in Isaiah chapter 9. And he tells us about this fulfillment as sort of a a tale of two kings. The the way he starts the story in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 is he says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, I want you to think about this. Caesar Augustus is one of the most powerful kings who ever lived. At this moment, he is ruling the Roman Empire, which covers most of the known world at the time. And he says, okay, I want all of you guys to be numbered and counted so I can tax you. And so you need to go to your hometown so we can do this in an orderly fashion. And guess what? Everybody has to do exactly what he says. He's in charge of a whole lot of people. He has a whole lot of power. But what do you know about him? Do you know who his parents were? Do you know what his real name was? Do you know, if he, if, if he didn't show up in this story this morning, could you have even told me like what century he lived in? Probably not. Unless you're like a Roman historian or something or read a book about it recently. Like, you don't know. We don't know about one of the most powerful men in history. We, don't, we know almost nothing about him, most of us. And yet, while he's giving those orders and, and making people move all over the world with this great power, he is unaware that the order he is giving is actually helping to fulfill one of the prophecies that the prophets made about the birth of the Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Because it says that Joseph, right, so they have to go to their hometowns, and it says in verse 4 of Luke 2, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. See, Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in the city of David, not only from the line of David, but in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem. That's not where 
Joseph's from. It's not where Mary lives. So how are they going to get there? Well, the most powerful man in the world is going to give a decree. This is everybody has to go back to their hometown. God uses that, works through that to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in time for the birth of Jesus, who in that moment, almost nobody thinks is significant. Almost nobody knows anything about. But what do you know about him now? Do you know who his parents are? Do you know what his name is? Do you know when he was born? Everybody does, right? The calendar is based on the birth of Jesus. This child, seemingly insignificant, seemingly powerless, when his mother and adopted father Joseph get to Bethlehem, there's not even room for them in the inn. He's not like Caesar. Caesar's moving everybody around. He has to get moved around because there's no place for him. And yet, he is the one who has true power. He is the one who will truly change the world because he is the one, not only whom God sent, but he is God himself in the flesh. He is the Savior, the God-man, born into the world, the one we've waited for for so long, you know why he came. Right? You, you, do you know any of Caesar Augustus's great accomplishments? You know what he did? How he died? Or why? Or when? You know. But we know what Jesus did. We know what he accomplished. We know how he died. We know why. And we know that he didn't stay dead. That he's alive even now. Even at the time, though, it was made known to some who this child was and why he was here. Not to the people that maybe would have expected an invitation to the birth of the Savior King, but to a group of shepherds, angels appeared and said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The child God promised in Genesis 3, the child God promised would come from Abraham's line, the child God promised would sit on David's throne, he has finally been born, the angels say. He's in the city of David. He's in Bethlehem. He's a Savior. He's the Messiah. He is Lord. The wait for his arrival was long, but God was faithful. And he's not done yet. So the king has come. The king has begun to reign. But the fullness of his reign of righteousness and peace, those are still yet to come. That is what we are waiting for. And that wait is long. Longer than the wait for Christmas. Longer than the days and weeks and months we count down to the Christmas season, we are waiting for the return of Christ, for that child who was born in Bethlehem to come again, this time not in humility but in glory. Not to come into uh, a manger, but to come and reign upon the earth. To come and redeem those who have been waiting for Him. 
So we wait eagerly. We wait with expectation. We wait with hope. We wait with confidence, knowing that one day all that God has promised will fully come to pass. Let's pray.